Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you've never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church to connect with, you belong here. There are so many great things going on at Collective right now, so make sure you are following us on social media at My Collective Church to stay in the loop. Now let's get into Sunday's message. First things first, happy NFL kickoff Sunday, everybody. Commanders fans, let's hear it. Okay. Hey, last year I did that and one person in the corner was like, me. And I was like, okay. This is what it feels like to have a new owner. There's hope again. Um, If you're not a Commanders fan, go ahead and shout out whatever team you root for that's going to lose today. Yeah, it means nothing to me. Um, I did forget. We're in Frederick, so Ravens fans, go ahead and get it out. That wasn't very good, Ravens fans. Uh, last, last year, I, I guess I had this tendency where I threw a ton of shade toward the Ravens throughout like multiple weeks of football season. And Ravens fans at Collective began to believe that I could jinx their team because every time I talked about them, they lost. So Ravens fans, I hope you win today. <laughs> if you lose, that's on you. You're playing the Texans. They're terrible. Um, hey, hey! I know a lot of you have football on the brain. Um, chances are you're here and your phone's gonna go off in about 15 or 20 minutes to tell you that Mark Andrews is not starting today. So you gotta switch him out of your tight end spot in fantasy. Do that now, please. Okay, don't do it during the rest of the sermon. Now's the time. Um, and I promise you that we'll be done with plenty of time for you to get home for kickoff so you can uh, watch and begin the Sam Howell era for the commanders. Um, and for those of you who are Ravens fans, it's you know, continuing the overpaid running back who thinks he's a quarterback era for your team. <laughs> you aren't disagreeing, so that says a lot. Uh, so this year, for the first time ever, both of my kids are in school. Elise is in third grade. Harper just started an all-day preschool. And Ray and I feel like we've made it as parents. Uh, people laughing right now have older kids. <laughs> they, they get this. For those of you who have young kids, like, you'll get there, okay? There'll be a day when they're both in school or all of them are in school and you just kind of feel like this is significantly easier. And last week, as my girls wrapped up their first full week, we asked them how school was going and if they had made any friends. And without skipping a beat, Elise, who's eight and just incredibly outgoing said, I have 11 new best friends. And then she began to tell us all their names, like what they wore to the first day of school and what she liked about them. And then she asked if she could invite all of them to her birthday party, which is in April. That's Elise. Um, She did the same thing when she came home from her first day of first grade and second grade. Now Harper, on the other hand, when we asked her if she had made any friends at school, she said no. Don't feel bad for her. This is by choice. Uh, Harper is more introverted and doesn't really care about having friends because she's perfectly content playing and, and learning all by herself. And so every day we've asked her, do you have any friends? And she's told us, no, because I don't want any. <laughs> no, I just play with Rory, which is one of her friends. Or what we get more often than not is that she just makes fart noises. <laughs> she's four. So we're now two weeks into school, and Harper only knows one kid's name, and that's because he got stung by a bee at recess, okay? This is my youngest. Now, if I had to put a visual to how both of my girls uh, approach friendships, it would look a little bit like this. Uh, Elise on your left, Harper on your right. Elise wants all the friends. Um, She thinks that her crowd is Frederick plus all the surrounding 
counties. Every person she meets is in her community. And chances are she thinks that you are in her crew because she's seen you or talked to you one time in her life. Now, Harper, on, on your right, uh, she doesn't want any of this. She doesn't want a crowd. She doesn't want a community. She doesn't want a crew. And depending on your personality, you probably resonate with one of my girls, right? You either want all the community or none of it. And over the past few weeks, we've been talking about how we experience community the way that God has designed it. Human beings have certain basic needs that if those basic needs are not met, then they cannot survive. And studies have shown that social connection, that community, is just as essential to survival as food, water, and shelter because we are hardwired for community. And we've been using this idea of circles to help us understand that we're designed for community, but not all friendships are equal. And these circles are based on how Jesus lived his life and how he did his friendships. And this has been backed up by science and psychology through the years. And so here are the circles one more time. It's the last time I'm bringing them up for this series. And I just want to say this. If you haven't written these down yet or taken a picture of them yet, I strongly encourage that you do so. Because either you're wrestling with this right now, and this will be a good reference point to go back to at some point, or in the future, you are going to run into some tensions when it comes to the relationships in your life, and you're going to think, ah, oh, if only I remembered what those circles look like. Because this will help you understand why you have so much tension with different people in your lives. One thing we encourage people to do every single week is to take notes, and that's not because I think what I'm saying is great. It's because I know that what God can teach us through Scripture is great. And if we take notes, we actually return, retain more and apply more of that learning to our lives. In fact, uh, we encourage people to write things down because when you do that, you actually process things as you write them. And what that means is you begin to process things now so that when you face this in the real world, you're not processing it for the first time. Right? And this is why we encourage you to write things down. It forces you to see and hear and retain, and this develops deeper learning and memory retention. And so we encourage you to take notes. I encourage you to write this down because I'm not going to bring this back up for at least a few more years. Now, if you are somebody who you're like, okay, I want to write down notes, one thing that we'll encourage you to do after service today is head to the pallet wall, head to Next Steps, and there'll be a journal there. Uh, we have journals at the pallet wall every single week, and they are yours for free if you want one. You'll never have to pay for them. If you're willing to take notes, we'll cover the cost of a journal so you can do that. And the same is true for those of you who are teenagers as well. Teenagers, if you want to start developing that habit now, which I would encourage that you do, even if the adults around you aren't doing it and aren't listening to me, okay, set the example for them, you can go grab a journal, they'll, they'll hook you up. And I just want to finish by saying this, it is not nerdy to take notes in church, okay, because um, we believe that what God can teach us through scripture can literally change our lives, right? in many cases it can save our lives. And so imagine sitting here and not taking notes for something that could lead you to better relationships and then running into that later and wondering, I wish I would have done that. And so it's not nerdy to take notes in church. It's intentional. This is how you own your growth. So if you haven't written that down yet, last time to do so. So going back to the circles, uh, when you look at it, you see we have a crowd, which is about 150 people. We have a community, which is between 15 and 50 people. And we have a crew, which is between three to five people. This is how we're designed. This is what science and psychology back up. This is how Jesus lived his life. But everything proves that these are the circles that we have in our lives. And every single one of these circles are based on time. Because the more time that we spend with people, the closer they move to that center. And I said this in week one, and this is really important. It doesn't matter who you want in that center if time is not connected to that, right? And so you might have some people who say, well, they're not crew, but you spend all your time with them. You're just kind of lying to yourself. 
all of this is based on the amount of time that you spend with people. And we've also learned that the three to five people that you spend the most time with are the people that you are the most like. And so that crew matters a ton. Now, when you look at these circles, uh, one thing I do want to clarify is that there's going to be times when there is imbalance in your friendships, meaning there will be people who are in your crew, um, but maybe you are in their community, and that's okay. You don't have to be perfectly equal with everyone, but the more intentional time that you spend with people in your community, the more they will feel like crew. And the thing is, you can develop incredibly real and thriving relationships with people in your community that will feel like crew, while still having even more intimate friendships with your three to five. And that's simply because you are doing the hard work to raise the bar on all of your friendships, right? which is a good thing. So today, uh, as we close out this series, we're going to read one more story about why we need a crew. And here's some context for what we're about to read. Um, God, and we're in the Old Testament, God has freed the Israelite people from slavery with Moses leading the way. And as they venture through the desert of modern-day Egypt, Israel, and Palestine, known as the wilderness, they stop at a place called Rephidim. And that's where we pick things up in Exodus 17, verse 8. It says this, While the people of Israel were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. And so in the history of the Israelites, this is actually Israel's first war. And this is very personal. The Amalekites were a nomadic group of warriors that actually had generational ties to the Israelites. Ultimately, many years before this, there was kind of a split in the family, and it led to this immense hatred. And just a weird fact that I learned this week when researching the Amalekites, um, historians believe that they're the ones who domesticated the camel in order to have swiftness and effectively surprise attack other armies. And so they're all in on this fighting thing, and they are very capable of destroying the Israelites. And Moses, who's leading the way, knew this. The story continues, Moses commanded Joshua, choose some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. Now, Joshua was essentially Moses' secretary of defense. He's a warrior and a strong leader. Um, he actually becomes the leader of the Israelites in the future and leads them into the promised land that God gave to them. But right now, he is kind of their lead warrior. And so Moses tells Joshua to grab their best men and go fight. The problem is they don't really have best men. Right? This is their first war. They didn't have a military. They didn't have tactical gear and weapons. And so Moses tells Joshua that while you fight, this is what I'm going to do. In verse 19, it says, Tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill holding the staff of God in my hand. Now, at face value when reading this, it's easy to think that Moses has just sent Joshua to die. Right? You go out and fight this war while I hold a stick that I found in the desert above my head. But the thing is, Joshua understands that the staff symbolized the Israelites' relationship with God. This staff was a reminder of God's presence. Moses had actually already used the staff through the directive of God to part the Red Sea. And he just recently, a few verses earlier, slammed it against the rock so that it could bring water to the Israelites in the desert. And so when Moses says that he's going to hold the staff of God in his hand, he's reminding Joshua that God is with them and that God is going before them. And because of that, they believe God will bring them victory. So just so we're clear, this isn't one of those scenarios where your kid found a stick outside and thinks it needs to be inside with them because it's a special stick for some reason. Like, it's bigger than that. This is actually a, a special thing that God had given to Moses. The story continues, verse 10 says, So Joshua did what Moses had commanded and fought the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Hur climbed to the top of a nearby hill. 
As long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he dropped his hand, the Amalekites gained the advantage. And so Joshua goes to war, and Moses stands up on a hill with two of his closest friends, these guys named Aaron and Hur. And while they're up there, they realize that when the staff is above Moses' head, they're winning. But if Moses drops his hands, they begin to lose. Really, they begin to die. They talk about pressure. It continues, it says, Moses' arms soon became so tired that he could no longer hold them up. And the thing is, while this is a story about Moses and the Israelites, you know this feeling. Right? You know this feeling in your own life. You know what it's like to be physically tired while trying to hold something up. But it's not just physically. You know what it's like to be emotionally tired, spiritually tired, mentally tired. Right? And you know that feeling of if you give up, if you stop holding up your arms or your faith or your family or your mental health, that the other side of it is death and destruction. That is Moses in this moment. Right? It's just too much for him. And we know that feeling. But then check out what happens, verse 12. It says, so Aaron and her found a stone for him to sit on. Then they stood on each side of Moses, holding up his hands. So his hands held steady until sunset. As a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. The thing is, Moses was never told by God that he had to do this alone. And so what does this crew do? Right, they step up. They give him a place to seat. They settle in next to him. And they hold up his arms through the night. And because of that, the Israel, Israelites win. Now, before talking about our crew, I, I do want to make sure that we fully understand what's going on in this story. They aren't winning this battle because of Moses. They're not winning this battle because of Joshua or the army. They are winning because of God. And the symbolism here in this story is that as Moses gets tired, as that staff begins to fall, God is no longer at the top, and that is when they begin to lose. It's the idea that as Moses' arms lower toward the ground, that the Israelites are trying to fight the battle on their own, right? God is no longer going ahead of them, and it's a battle that they will not win. So let me just say this about God. Some of you are trying to live your life without him. Some of you are trying to go through the battles of addiction and self-doubt and healing from the wounds of childhood or dealing with grief all alone. And the truth is, you will not win. You, you cannot win because those burdens are too heavy alone. Life is too heavy alone. So ultimately what this story tells us is that this is why we need God. This is why a faith in a relationship with Jesus matters. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, one that I share often, comes from Matthew 11, 28 through 30, and it says this. It says, Then Jesus said to them, Come to me, all who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Right? Jesus says, All who are tired. Everyone who is worn out, people who are carrying more weight than they should be carrying, people who are fighting battles that they know they cannot win, come to me and I will give you rest. And he says, link up your life with mine. Walk alongside me and I will carry this weight for you. And so some of you feel like you're fighting a losing battle right now. You are physically, emotionally, spiritually tired and you just can't keep your arms up anymore. And we're going to talk about how we need a crew to help us through those battles in a moment. But I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that it's not about what people can do. It's about what God can do. 
Right? And some of you feel like you're about to tap out, like you understand what it means to be weary. You are carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. And the thing that we want you to hear today is that you don't have to carry those burdens. Right? You are allowed to give those burdens up. You are allowed to let God give you the rest that your soul is craving. And we learn that you get that when you link your life up with Jesus. It's when you walk alongside him, it's putting him first, it's allowing him to be your leader and your savior, your rescuer and your forgiver. Because just like every story we have read in this series about why we need a crew and what a good crew looks like, it starts with a foundation of faith in God. All of this starts with God. That is where you find rest for your soul. Because you can have amazing friendships, but without God, they will still fall short. And so for some of you, as we continue in this series and we talk about crew, that is where you start. Start with him. Let's get back to talking about our crew. Here's the main takeaway from this story that I wanna share. Uh, write this down. Your, your, your crew helps you fight your battles. Right? Your crew helps you fight your battles. You shouldn't fight your battles alone. You shouldn't go through job loss alone. You shouldn't fight cancer by yourself. You shouldn't struggle with infertility in secret. You shouldn't try to do life without a crew, without people who can lift your hands up when you are just too tired. Ecclesiastes 4.10 says this, if one person falls, the other can reach out and help, but someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Our crew picks us up. They hold up our arms when we can't. They recognize when we are in trouble. That's Aaron and her. Now imagine if this story, if Aaron and her chose not to help Moses, right? What if they were jealous of the attention that Moses was getting, that God chose him to lead the Israelites instead of them? What if they were up there watching him struggle and took a step back and said, hey, this is not our responsibility, right? Your problems are not my problems. What happens? In this story, people die. But real friends, a real crew understands that your victory is their victory because your crew wants you to have the best relationships, the best faith, the best healing possible. So they help you fight and win those battles. Two of my longest and closest friends are a part of this church. And we haven't been really great at this lately, but from time to time, the three of us get together and and we do a check-in. And we have a list of questions that we ask every single time. Uh, and these are the questions we ask. Are you reading your Bible? Because we understand that if we're not doing that, we're going to experience more troubles in our life. We ask, how has the last month gone for you with the stuff that you brought up last time, right? Accountability. What goals do you have over the next 30 days that we can support you in? And the question that I hate the most, which is, what is the one thing you don't want to share with us that you are struggling with? And all of these are hard questions to answer, especially when one of us is dropping the ball. But these questions are about holding up the arms of our friends so that they can win. We don't ask each other, what's the one thing that you don't wanna share because we wanna shame each other. It's not about making someone feel bad or making yourself feel good about how you're doing well. This is about saying, tell us what you're struggling with so we can support you through this. And this can be anything. It could be a sin that we're struggling with. It could be about mental health or parenting or marriage or all the above. And we ask this question so everybody knows we got you. You don't have to fight this alone because your crew helps you fight your battles. Your victory is their victory. And I've been alluding to this for a few weeks. You know, when you think about these circles, when you hear the stories of Job and the paralyzed man and Moses and their crews, 
I know that some of you are thinking about the people that you spend the most time with, and you're thinking, they are not those types of people. And so sometimes finding your crew means spending less time with the wrong people and more time with the right people. Let me say this as directly as I can. As we finish up this series today, if you have realized that your crew doesn't act like crew, you need to unfriend some people, right? And not just on Facebook. You have enough trouble doing that, but this is talking about real life. Yeah, you do. Because your crew should be the type of people who will hold up your arms so that you can see victory in the battles that you are having in your life. And if your crew aren't those type of people, deuces, right? Now, I'm not saying you go up to them today after church and you're like, hey, pastor said deuces, I'm out. <laughs> Right? And, I, and I'm making this sound easier than it is, but you have to think about the consequences of having the wrong people in your three to five because the cost of keeping the wrong people in your crew is way heavier than the cost of choosing to spend less time with them. Right before my wife and I got married, some dynamics started to change in one of her friendships in school. Uh, Ray was living off campus at the time because she graduated early because she's smarter than I am. And once she wasn't around this friend anymore, she realized that this friendship was very one-sided. Uh, on top of that, we found out that this uh, supposed friend started some rumors about us. Ultimately, stepping out of spending a ton of time with this person, Ray realized that this friendship was unhealthy. The problem was that she was a bridesmaid. And Ray wrestled with this a lot. She could avoid the conflict and the hard decision of asking a person who she thought was crew to not be part of our day, or she could have the hard conversation that was the right decision and deal with the consequences of that. And she chose to remove this girl from our wedding. And I will tell you that I fell more in love with Ray because of this, mostly because I hated how this girl treated Ray, but also because I'm a super confrontational person. And I was overjoyed that I was marrying someone who was strong enough to have this hard conversation, right? And it was messy. We went to a small Christian college, and so it was super controversial. A bunch of people knew our business, and they all had opinions about it, but they weren't in our crew, so we didn't listen, and what mattered was that as Ray and I looked at our future together, this girl wasn't someone that we wanted to be a part of it. And so some of you, as you walk away from this series today, you have some hard decisions to make about the people you spend time with, and that is okay. You don't need to feel bad because you are raising the standards on your friendships. Now, I do want to turn the tables on this, though, because this whole series has been about finding our crew, right? finding people to do life with. But let me ask this question. Are you crew worthy? Because it's not just about how we need these types of people in our lives. We need to be these types of people as well. Right? Community goes both ways. You see, we have this tendency when we're reading the Bible to put ourselves into the main character's shoes. When hearing the story about Moses, how many of you thought, I am just like Moses, right? You're sitting there thinking about the battles that you are fighting, how your arms are getting tired, how it'd be really nice to have some friends in your life to keep them raised for you, right? And that's okay, right? I do that too. But there are also times in our lives when we are Aaron and her, when it's not about our battles that we're fighting, but the battles we are helping our friends fight. Right, when we're supporting them, when we're holding their arms up. So the question is, are you that type of friend? Because some people don't have a crew, and it's not because there aren't people around them. And it's not because they've put up walls. It's because they themselves aren't crew people. They don't show up. 
They don't show empathy. They don't sit with their friends in their mess. They don't point other people toward Jesus or their foundation isn't in Jesus at all. Galatians 6.2 says, share each other's burdens and in this way, obey the law of Christ. The law of Christ is to love God and love people. And one of the ways that we live that out is to share each other's burdens. God didn't create this deep longing in us for community so that we could just get something out of it. Community isn't selfish. God created us so that we could both be the recipient of the blessings of good friendships and also give the blessings of good friendships. And while it's possible that we need to move some people around in our life, it's also possible that other people might need to remove us because we aren't crew worthy. And if that's the case, this series isn't about how you need to find a crew. It's about how you need to work to be someone who is crew worthy because community goes both ways. So one thing that is true about me is that I hate running. Uh, I'm not a runny, runner. My body's not built for running, okay? It's just not. Um, but I've had the opportunity to go with one of my friends to a few of his marathons, and they are pretty incredible. Um, they're also very, very boring. Um, but the feat in and of itself is incredible, right? 26.2 miles. Most of us don't like driving 26.2 miles, but people choose to run this uh, for fun. I think it's because they hate themselves. Uh, <laughs> So there was an experiment that happened a few years ago, and the experiment was, could a human being run a marathon in under two hours? Now, the average time for someone who runs a marathon is about four and a half hours. Um, that's a pace of 10 minutes per mile, uh, plus some change. To qualify for the Boston Marathon, which is probably uh, the most famous marathon in the world, you have to finish uh, another marathon in under three and a half hours. And so scientists said it wasn't possible but Nike set out to see if they were right. And so this marathon took place in Vienna, Austria, and it was run by the greatest marathoner of all time named Eliud Kipchoge. And if you have watched the Olympics at all or anything um, running in the past few years, you, you've seen this man before. And here's what's amazing is that he did it. He finished a marathon in one hour, 59 minutes, and 40 seconds, meaning that he ran four minute and 35 second miles for 26.2 miles, right? This dude can run a mile faster than I can walk the 100 yards to my mailbox. <laughs> I feel like he just lapped me like the whole time. Here's the problem though with the record is that it didn't actually count because it wasn't an open race. This race was specifically designed for Kipchoge. The course intentionally had minimal elevation. He ran in a pair of Nike shoes that weren't yet sanctioned by the marathon commissions. But more importantly is that they used an elite group of runners to surround Kipchoge the entire race in order to break the headwind so that he could run in their draft. The, the pace setters were labeled as a murderer's row of Olympians and other distant runners. And they ran seven at a time in a wind blocking formation devised by an expert of aerodynamics. Imagine the mighty ducks flying V, but in reverse. <laughs> Here's a picture of it. And Eliot broke the world record, but he couldn't have done it without this group of runners who ran a harder race. Right. They, they did the hard work. They took on the headwinds so that Kipchoge could cross the finish line alone as the only person in the history of the world to run a sub two hour marathon, a record that scientists said a human being could not reach. And of all the pictures that I saw from this amazing feat, here's my favorite one. Look at the runners in the background. 
Look at how happy they are for their friend, to be a part of something incredible, to know that they helped play a part in history. And the thing is, we don't, we don't know their names. Every article I read about that just, just called them the 43 runners who surrounded him the entire way. But Eliot's victory was their victory. His joy was their joy. His success was their success. Right? This is what a crew looks like. Throughout this series, I've asked the question multiple times, do you have a crew? Are you spending time with the right people? And I know that for some of you, this series has been really hard because you don't have a crew right now. And so please don't give up on finding one. Please don't give up on vulnerability because you tried it with someone who you thought could be that person and they shut you down. Right? Don't give up on trying that again. Don't give up on removing the wrong people from your life so you can bring the right people and don't give up on becoming the type of friend who will hold up the arms of those you are closest to, of taking on the headwinds so that your crew can experience victory. Don't give up on finding people that are rooted in the grace and truth of Jesus and allowing them to speak those things into your life. I know some of you do not have this right now, and that sucks. You feel the pain of the desire to have this community that God has created for you. This is a really hard tension to live in. But do not isolate yourself. Do not fall back into the crowd. Continue to lean in, to take risks, to put yourself out there. God has a crew of people for you. You just have to find them. And know this. There are going to be times as you seek this out and you make some changes in your life when you will feel alone. But this church is here for you. And more importantly, God is with you, walking alongside you through this. And for those of you who have realized in this series that you do have a crew, you have people that you trust, people who support you and who you support. Don't undervalue those people. Don't take those people for granted. Don't feel bad because you spend more time with them than anyone else because your life will be better because of them, right? People who point you toward Jesus, people who you can be real and honest with about your brokenness and show that same vulnerability to you, people who fight alongside you and share in your growth and your healing and your victory. So going all the way back to the beginning, Genesis 2, God said, it's not good for man to be alone. So step out of the crowd, step into community, and find your crew. Let's pray. God, as we've wrestled over the past four weeks about friendships and crew and vulnerability, really, God, as we've wrestled with a foundation of faith in our, in our closest friendships, God, it's been hard because the truth is, God, um, we don't have the old friends that we wanted to have. We're not, we're not close to those people we grew up with and, and because life changes and we move and um, you know, we realize that we're just not close to those people that we spent so much time with anymore. And the hard thing, God, is we long so desperately to have old friends, but in order to have those types of friendship, it takes us leaning in now takes time, it takes creating opportunities so we can look back 10 years from now and say we do have those types of friends. And God, the thing about community, even though we're designed for it, we have this longing in our heart is that it's scary. God, that it, that it makes us feel insecure, that, um, God, that it's hard to be vulnerable, especially when it's not 
shown back. And because of that, community, even though it's this beautiful thing, can create tension and pain in our life. So God, I just pray as we, we step further into this idea of having community, we step further into this idea of having a crew, God, that even when there is pain, we know that you are with us. God, that even when we feel alone, we know that you are with us. God, that we can keep leaning in and, and find the crew that you've created for us so that we can experience the life that you have for us. God, more than anything, we're thankful that the burdens that we feel in this world that we do not have to carry alone, God, that you don't ask us to carry those things by ourselves. Ultimately, you give us community to help us, but more than anything, you give us you who says you will carry those burdens for us. God, help us uh, trust that in you and help us trust that in our friends. God, we thank you and love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.